Thanks to Grammarly for supporting The Motley Fool. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Start writing confidently by going to Grammarly.com fool to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Tuesday, January 21st, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. Today we're taking a deep dive into what is one of the underrated consumer goods services, in my opinion, uh, that's cruises. Joining me today is Asit Sharma. Asit, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for inviting me, Emily. I am eager to cruise on into this topic. So, when I was doing my initial research, I was so intrigued because um, so I'm 25 years old. I've never been on a cruise. And honestly, the cruise industry is not something that I, in my experience, had spent a lot of time thinking about either as an investor or as a consumer. But I noticed some research that at the end of 2018, there were over 50 cruise lines across the world and nearly 30 million passengers took at least one cruise last year. It just it struck me as a huge number for an industry that I had essentially no exposure to. Yeah, and in fact, it's just flies under the radar, I think, of most of the consumer goods screens that you might um, take if, if you're into screening for stocks. You, you see a cruise line, and we're going to talk about this. There are not very many of them that you can buy, and it's just sort of this peripheral thought. However, it's a big industry. There are huge numbers of ships um, carrying huge numbers of passengers with billions of dollars uh, that, that are being spent every year. So it's one that I think is um, really interesting to explore, great for long-term investing, and it's sort of cyclical. So maybe there are opportunities um, when times aren't so good to buy into the stock. And, and we can talk about as we go along why uh, this is a cyclical industry. I'm sure most investors can sort of guess uh, in advance of that part of our conversation. Yeah. So when you think about the cruise industry, I mean, we talk about it being cyclical. Of course, people, whenever they have discretionary income, are more likely to spend money on vacations in general. But do you think there's anything compelling about the cruise experience that could make someone hey, say, hey, I want to go on a cruise versus uh, just buy a flight? Because you know, flights are increasingly cheap, aren't they? They certainly are, getting cheaper by the year. Um, myself, I've been on one cruise uh, in my life, and that was when I was in my early 20s. So like you, I look at it more from an investment angle and one of extreme interest. But I think that the cruise industry has some really compelling uh, reasons for people to take a look, whether you're an investor or just someone who wants a break from your typical vacation. I and mean, it's an opportunity to travel with minimal effort on your part. You know, just reach your port, get on your ship, and life is taken care of for you. That appeals to our sense of luxury and indulgence um, and also the idea of personal restoration. I should also say it's, it also taps into our ongoing fascination with the sea that many of us have when we're small. It's something that has this aura of romance about it, but also that satisfies a wanderlust that I think we all keep buried somewhere inside of us, even with nine to five that we uh, have to sort of slog through. And also, there's this new generation of ships which have innumerable recreation, dining, 
shopping, entertainment, gambling, personal care options, and they're also enabled with a bunch of tech, which wasn't the case in the past. So if you haven't taken a cruise in a long time, it's probably a different experience than you remember and one that holds immense fascination, whether you're um, a slightly middle-aged person like myself, I'll try to put the best sheen on it that I can, <laughs> um, looking to capture some of that uh, romance of the sea, or you're a younger person who may be looking for a supremely Instagrammable experience. They have something for everyone now. I, I love the fact that you touch on the the fascination with the sea. I, I can't speak for anybody else, but my life has been about avoiding the sea. I think I watched <laughs> Titanic at way too young of an age and and was scarred about you know drifting off into the cold ocean. But to your point about having it be a luxury experience, I think a lot of conceptions that people have historically about luck, about cruises is that they are luxury, that there is something that's kind of expensive, you're paying up, it's almost like going to an all-inclusive resort. But as you do all of those things, that there's a big down market shift for these cruises as well now, right? My impression of the industry is that uh, instead of paying a high upfront fee to get in like you would do historically, now it's a much lower fee, but they they upcharge you, right? It, it's that kind of discount airline experience where they're making a majority of their money by um, getting you to buy drinks on board or buy experiences on board. Yeah, I, I think that the cruise industry has done a really good job of replicating some of the strategy of the airline industry. The big legacy characters um, like Delta and American now offer this entry-level seat to compete with the scrappy carriers like Spirit Airlines, they have something for every budget. And in the cruise industry, we see, especially in the U.S., um, there's an itinerary that basically goes from the port cities, Fort Lauderdale or Miami, back and forth to the Caribbean. And the cruise companies can offer three to four day cruises at an extremely affordable rate. So you can have your total cost average about 70 to 100 bucks per day for a three or four day cruise. And that's accessible to a wide number of travelers. Now, they also um, go very, very upmarket. So you can take a seven-day itinerary on a luxury cruise line, say Silver Sea or Cunard or Viking. Those will start anywhere from 3500 to 5000 and they'll go on up. And of course, in between those two extremes, there are a lot of great cruises on the newest and biggest ships in the business. Um, one that I am, have been following this year is the Norwegian Bliss, um, and that uh, ship, you can, for under a thousand bucks, you can get a seven day cruise and then partake in some really cool activities. But as Emily, you point out, once you get on board, those really awesome activities like the racetrack <laughs> that's on the Norwegian <laughs> Bliss, um, you have to pay some, you have to pony up some more dollars for that. So the whole thrust is actually, as you say, to get you on board and have you spend on board. Just one stat, Alfred listeners, I was uh, looking at Norwegian Cruise Lines. Um, their year-to-date performance for the three quarters from last year that we already have booked, their revenue, about 30% of it came just from onboard spending last year. That's amazing. And in the process of, of doing research for this, I personally went out and I was looking on these websites, um, and I feel so compelled to take a cruise now after, you know, digging around a little bit on Norwegian, some on Carnival. and But yeah, I noticed that as well. You, you pay a base base set per day and you end up paying a little bit more on board. And one of the things that you mentioned to me when we talked previously was that uh, I was seeing a lot of low prices because of what you called wave season. Right. So wave season, it sounds like a season you should avoid. 
Just means there are big waves on the ocean, but it actually means something quite different. It's a really important season for both investors and travelers. And we happen to be, I was, I was, when we were chatting yesterday, I was telling you we're in the middle of it, but actually we're sort of more in the beginning of it. It runs every year from January 1st to roughly the end of March. And this is the time of the year when the big cruise companies are filling up the last, say, 40 to, to, 50% of their capacity. They sell a lot of their next year's bookings before the end of December, and then they want to incentivize us to travel. And at the same time, travelers are looking for a bargain. So it's a sort of dance that's now set in stone. So if you're listening today and you're persuaded by Emily's enthusiasm to go on a cruise yourself, finish listening to the podcast. <laughs> but after that, uh, Google up some of these cruise deals because they're quite compelling. And for investors, we tend to wait till the uh, quarter after wave season is over and look at bookings. How did the cruise ships do in terms of uh, getting bookings for the rest of the year? How does their um, capacity look for the rest of the year? Is it now filled up? So it's really uh, crucial, but uh, an interesting season native to this industry. I really want to get into more of the weeds about the different cruise stocks there are out there. But before we do so, I want to say thanks again to Grammarly for supporting our podcast. Grammarly is a writing assistant that makes you look and sound smarter. Whether at school, work, or when you're on the go, Grammarly's free version can be downloaded by anyone on their computer or phone and helps review critical spelling and grammar. Grammarly Premium Service gives you more advanced help, looking also at things like advanced punctuation, structure, style, even conciseness. At I know when I'm writing emails, I need all the help I can get to ensure that I'm actually communicating in the most efficient way possible. So my favorite part about Grammarly is that it prevents me from sounding like a fool with a little F in front of my coworkers and outside contacts. So go to Grammarly.com slash fool to get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. That's Grammarly.com slash fool for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. So asset. I'm really interested about the different stocks that are cruise stocks that are actionable for investors. It's great for consumers. You can go out there and get all these great deals right now. But I know that you've spent a lot of time digging into what's essentially the the big three cruise lines in the industry right now. Sure. There really aren't a lot of choices if you're interested in investing in the cruise industry outside of the big three, which um, are Carnival Cruise Lines, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian Cruise Lines. Uh, symbol for Carnival is CCL. It's a dual-listed company, so uh, this is the symbol you want as a U.S. investor. Royal Caribbean is RCL, and Norwegian Cruise Lines, NCLH. And these are great companies uh, as a small set. You can benchmark them against each other. And so maybe before I get into specifics, um, Emily, let me answer a couple of uh, questions that, that you've posed to me in terms of how do we determine what is a best cruise line. And we won't say best maybe um, with our hands to the wall since there's only three, but maybe what defines better or, or a good cruise line. So if you're investing in this industry, you want to be careful about capacity. In other words, how many ships is a cruise company putting into the ocean each year? Uh, here's another term uh, that you can learn that's native to this industry. It's called new build. A new build is simply a ship that's under construction or has recently been completed. So what does the new build pipeline look like? If we're headed towards a recession and a cruise company is just plunking down billions because they want to increase capacity by 25% in the next year, 
that might be a little bit of a red flag. Another thing you want to look for is a high return on invested capital. And return on an invested capital is a metric. I know investors have heard us on industry focus, uh, be it consumer goods or, or tech or any of the others really talk about this term a lot, but it really applies well here. How good is the company at investing the um, capital that it has into these ships and then getting an annualized return on that? So we can compare return on invested capital among these uh, three companies. We'll get into that in a moment. And then you want to see steady growth in net revenue yields. Net yields is an industry term again, and I promise that'll be the last industry term that I throw at you guys today. <laughs> but it simply means it's a cruise line's net revenue divided by total available passenger cruise days. So it's a way of looking at revenue in terms of units and understanding how good a company is at um, having revenue divided by its capacity. And you want to see this number at least exceeding the rate of inflation. So it could be low single digits. When it's really healthy, a cruise company could be throwing off net revenue yields growth of you know mid-single digits or even close to the high single digits. So those are pretty much three, um, I think, good parameters you want to look at in this industry when you're comparing these stocks against each other. I think it's so interesting because when you laid out those three points, the first thing that came to my mind was the airline industry. So going back to yeah. kind of our analogy for the airline industry here, there are a lot of similarities in what we look for in cruise stocks that we look for in, in airline companies. But the flip side is that uh, airline companies, you get a lot of people traveling for business, a lot of people willing to pay up a little bit more, really competitive loyalty programs and demand that doesn't isn't as cyclical as cruise industries, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you alluded to something that's really interesting to me in that um, the capacity in the airline industry, there is a market for old aircraft. There's a secondary market. So when um, Delta is finally through with one of its planes, and they, by the way, happen to keep hold on to their planes longer than almost any other legacy airline. But there's always a leasing company to buy those old planes and put those in service, sell them to smaller carriers. Cruise operators build these really huge vessels. And there's not really this vibrant market when you're ready to retire a ship that another cruise company wants to snap it up and refurbish it. So these companies have to be extremely good at how they measure capacity growth, and they have to understand the economic cycle. And by and large, Norwegian, uh, Carnival, and Royal Caribbean have been really good at understanding when not to overbuild. Um, and maybe while we're talking about a potential snafu in terms of um, building too much capacity, let's look at the flip side, what might define um, a not so good cruise operator. So we've talked about capacity. Another is not being able to optimize onboard revenues. So what Emily was uh, referring to earlier in the program, that we get on board and we're incentivized to spend. If you don't do a great job at that, and especially in this day and age, if your tech on board isn't bundling people to spend, uh, if the app that you download, which guides you through your whole voyage, isn't telling you that, hey, there's a special at the bar, go now and drink. <laughs> Drinks are 50% off you're losing a lot of revenue opportunity versus your uh, fierce competitors. On the flip side of some of the pauses we talked about, a low return on invested capital, one that's like hovering in the very low single digits, is a yellow flag. If you have stagnant or declining net yields, meaning you're not able to increase that revenue per passenger per cruise day, 
that's also a bad sign. And I would say, I'll throw out one more, which is an ineffectiveness at hedging fuel prices. And maybe, you know, Emily, I, I'm thinking by the time we finish this podcast today, I think we've realized that the cruise industry is sort of a stepchild of the airline industry. Because, <laughs> you know, airlines, they have to hedge fuel all the time. Mm -hmm. And the um, cruise industry also has a very big both labor component like airlines and also a fuel component, oil component. So you, you got to be able to smooth out the ups and downs of that market. And buying fuel is complex in today's world. It's often affected very suddenly by geopolitical events. We saw the bombings of Saudi Arabia's output last year. Um, there are some new maritime regulations that all the cruise operators have to abide by this year to reduce sulfur in their emissions, which sort of changes the type of fuel they buy. So you have to be good at that. And if you're not, that can be sort of a yellow red flag as well. You took the time to pull a lot of really interesting numbers about Carnival Royal and Norwegian to kind of compare apples to apples to the extent that we we can quickly. Uh, and the numbers are honestly really interesting. The, the companies themselves are more similar than I would have assumed, but there's lots of differences, what I'm noticing, and free cash flow between the three operators. Notably, that Norwegian seems to be producing way more free cash flow than both Carnival and Royal. Uh, and that kind of goes seems to go back to what you're saying about uh, investing, right? So they're investing either in new ships or investing in the onboard experience, leading these companies to spend a lot of money on on capex. And it's really a compelling industry because of the fact that, uh, yeah, they're 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 fighting that kind of uphill battle of convincing people that they they need to go on a cruise versus airlines don't really need to convince people that they need to travel. Yeah, because uh, airlines, as you said, they have that whole business component that's always there. There's no big business traveling contingent that's going on to cruises. It would be fun and nice if uh, everyone got money from their companies to go have company meetings. There's an idea. Out on sea. <laughs> but um, there is no business equivalent. And so they have to be so careful about this capacity. Something that you mentioned to me when we were prepping for the show, Emily, about Norwegian um, in your research I know you did a deep dive into them recently. In your research, research into them, you were telling me that, hey, you know, they are very careful not to um, just throw out new ships and they like to upgrade their ships as they get older. And I think that's reflected in these numbers that I pulled. So if you look at the last uh, trailing 12 months, while each of these companies has operating cash flow uh, in the billions, that is the, the cash flow that's needed to pay operating expenses. Um, what's left after you pay for your physical assets like new ships and upgrading equipment, et cetera? Um, Norwegian, at least over the last 12 months, has about a billion bucks in free cash flow versus um, a little under 400 million for Royal Caribbean. And Carnival, which is going through a sort of a big upgrade cycle, they only had $46 million of free cash flow left because they were spending on uh, new ships and bringing those out uh, onto the ocean. So I found that pretty fascinating. It kind of leads me scratching my head and thinking to myself, is it worth trying to pick out a single cruise stock or do I just buy a basket? Yeah, this is this is tough because if you um, look at a chart, put these three on a long-term chart and they're close together, their performance is very similar. However, over about the last five and, and even 10 years, Royal Caribbean has outperformed against its peers. And that's because I think it's sort of, if you look at the three bear story, it's, it's the one that's right in the middle. You know, it's not as small as Norwegian, which has about $12.7 billion in annual revenue. Royal Caribbean has $28 billion, And then 
uh, Carnival, which is the largest, has about 35 billion in annual revenue. So it's between those two. Um, it's got a slightly higher operating margin. It generates about a 20% operating margin versus Carnival at 16%, um, Norwegian around 19%. So it's got some small advantages and it's had a little bit higher growth in net revenue yields recently. So it's outperformed its peers. I'll just give you the last um, 12 months, or sorry, the, the five-year return. Um, Royal Caribbean has uh, appreciated about 79% versus Carnival's 30.5% and Norwegian's 31%. And that's on a total return basis, so reinvesting dividends, although Norwegian doesn't um, actually offer a dividend, the other two do. So if you only looked at the past, you might say, hey, I, I should be invested in Royal Caribbean. But based on the stuff that we've been looking at, Emily, in fact, uh, if you spread a lot of their statistics, financial statistics out, they're so similar. I think the future will hold that these stocks will move more in parity. If it were me, I'd buy them all in a basket. And I guess the, the natural kind of question off of that, if I could continue to press you, is should you be invested in the cruise industry at all? So, you know, we look at these three companies and, you know, they all seem to be solid performers. You mentioned that Royal Caribbean in particular has been an amazing performer um, and all three of them are subject to kind of the same market forces. But is there any big tailwinds or maybe even headwinds that are being posed to the cruise industry right now that would make uh, it a compelling time for investors to get involved? Or should we continue to sit on the sidelines? I think it's a persuasive investment in general. Um, we should maybe talk about the, the headwinds. Well, let's talk about the tailwinds first. Let's talk about what makes this a nice long-term investment, this industry. One is, and I'm, I was sort of surprised by this. So the long-term market compounded annual growth rate, it's a way of measuring how fast an industry is growing uh, every year, is 5 to 6% for this industry. And it's projected to keep doing that for about the next 10 years. And against a lot of other industries in the consumer goods space, that's actually a pretty fast growth rate. That's and what huge, it tells, huh? yeah, yeah. So what it tells investors is this is a place to look where companies can grow their market share. And I think that's very, very convincing as one reason to take a look at this. Also, we've got so many new ships and new ports. Uh, the industry is evolving very quickly. Antarctica now is, uh, a destination that isn't quite so remote and exotic as it was even five to seven years ago. There are more tourists to places like the Galapagos Islands, uh, more tourists to Alaska. There are more river cruises in Europe, which have become an extremely popular part of the industry. Um, so there's many opportunities for these companies to grow. Just looking at Royal Caribbean, it's bringing on, in terms of new ships, it's bringing on the Celebrity Apex, the Silver Moon and Silver Muse in its Silver Seas series, and a ship called the Odyssey of the Seas. That's just one cruise line next year. So none of these are overextending on, overextending on their capacity, but they are giving travelers uh, a great choice in really interesting ships uh, and experiences. So those are two really big uh, tailwinds there. Just a couple of quick others. Um, technology, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, is geared towards a contemporary traveler. Uh, ships are being designed uh, for those who want to share their uh, experience on social media um, or even to just have an experience versus buying something. So for this younger generation, millennials, Gen Z, who really favor experiences, ships are being designed to give you that experiential joy that, that you're seeking. Uh, finally, a tailwind that I'm interested in is the luxury component or the upmarket is attracting 
a lot of Asian travelers, specifically in China and India. And Emily, I wanted to ask you, you lived in China for um, four years. What is your take on uh, travel, uh, especially for the cruise industry, among that burgeoning middle class that's in, say, China and, and India? It's actually really interesting. Uh, I think the the components of Asian travel, or Chinese travel in particular, that's focused on groups. So historically, the Chinese government has, in a lot of ways, limited the locations that Chinese people could travel. And in many places, you could only go if it was with a group. And so not to mention language barriers, but also these kind of self-imposed government regulations have encouraged what I experienced to be a culture of group traveling that might make that Asian market more receptive to cruises, increasingly as they get more disposable income. That is really cool. That's a sort of cultural component um, that I wasn't aware of. And the whole aspect of how the government interacts with its uh, consuming public is so fascinating to me. I think the Chinese are great planners. <laughs> they seem to know how to keep their economy going. Um, I'm going to really briefly uh you asked for the headwinds. I'm going to really briefly run through some of these, which you know, are, are pretty much risk factors when you're looking at this industry. Um, so possible headwind, the earliest this coming year, as everyone knows that we're sort of overdue for a recession. Um, the global forecast, the World Bank forecast for global GDP growth, it's projected to rise just a little bit this year to 2.5%. But in the U.S., we're looking at just 1.8% growth this year. And the majority of the cruise industry still is centered in the U.S. We have 50% of the global passengers. So that could hurt the industry if we do hit a recession. Um, longer term, this gradual deflation of airline tickets that we mentioned is a, you know, basically a competitor for cruise dollars. So you have to watch the popularity of that industry and also how the Internet makes it so much easier to plan a flight, um, an Airbnb, and experiences on the ground versus um you know, what used to be more parity in the two experiences. Also, I mentioned the sulfur emissions that the International Maritime Organization is regulating. That's going to be a, a slight headwind for this year. Um, most of the cruise companies have already reported how much they think it'll affect their earnings as they comply with these standards. But one uh, interesting headwind that we should all think about is climate change. So I believe that Hurricane Dorian this year affected all three of the cruise lines earnings um, in a sort of disruptive way. And not only this, but we see smaller scale, uh, especially in uh, Caribbean destinations, smaller scale weather events uh, affecting a lot of ports. And as we grapple with the uh, whole issue of climate change, and I won't get political here and give my personal opinions on whether it's man-made or, or, or just a natural phenomenon, but it's here. The science supports that it's here. And this is something that the cruise companies are learning to deal with. And they are trying to um, come to terms with this. I'll just give you one example. Uh, Carnival has tried to become a more sustainable organization. It's switching a lot of its new ships over to liquefied natural gas to sort of do what they can for the climate. And I think that's sort of a win for them. Over the long term, they might have more fuel efficient ships. And it's sort of a win in marketing terms because younger travelers like to see stuff like that. But those are some headwinds you need to think about before you invest. Oh, I'll tell you what, I I do feel more compelled today to invest in the cruise industry than I did yesterday. That's for sure. Cool. So I want to make one 
last point, really quick point. So um, in terms of when you invest, if you like a company or you like an industry, it's never too early to invest. You can dollar cost average if you think maybe valuations are a bit high. All three of these companies have pretty modest forward P.E. ratios, meaning they're not too overvalued at this point in time. But I would say here's an idea for you, investors, um, something that Emily and I chatted about when we were uh, prepping for the show. If you like the industry, we've already said it's cyclical. You may want to wait for a recession because everyone hates the cruise industry in a recession and these stocks will get beat up. And that would be an optimal time to buy in and then just forget that you own these stocks for several years. You'll see a pretty handsome return. I love that idea. Uh, Asset, thank you again for coming on and chatting. Yeah, I feel like I've learned a lot from you today. Thanks so much, Emily. This was a fun conversation. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out and say hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. And if you're looking for more of our stuff, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass today. For Asset Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.